Welcome back to Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zach Kellyan, and this is episode two of Fight Club. How's it going today, Zach? You know, it's going well. Another brunch here at the Stardust Lounge. Another Bloody Mary in front of us. I can't complain. I do find it odd that last week when we were in here for brunch, we were the only people here because apparently they hadn't actually opened. They just kind of let us in and there was some bacon sitting around. Oh, that's fantastic. But this week it looks like we kind of have a thing going because I, I see a few patrons in here. Uh, that actually reminds me, I had a, not necessarily a fight club, but it was a gentleman's club, a club of men and uh, women who wanted to be a part. We had a couple women who were gay who were a part of this club where we would get up every Sunday, we would dress in our Sunday finest, and we would go to what we called church. Um, none of us really affiliated religiously at that time in my life. And uh, our church was the local strip club, which we would arrive to promptly at 10 a.m., again, full suits and dresses and patronize that for hours on end and have, have their brunch specials and everything. I would say, conservatively, we were about eight months into this tradition before one of us brought up to the owner, say, where are all the strippers? And it, <laughs> it turns out uh, they did not open at 10 a.m. We just walked in one time at 10 a.m. and they started serving us and that the club never really started even getting the strippers showing up until about 4 p.m. Wow. But I can relate to that, to, to the Fight Club in the sense that, you know, it was kind of our secret little thing. And it was an opportunity for us to potentially engage in some toxic male behavior. Well, what I do think is interesting is they still did manage to bring in Edgar Bergamot, even for this small crowd that we have here today. Does he have a home or does he just live under the piano? When they're closing up at night, it seems like he just keeps playing. And when I come in here, he's still playing. I would ask him, but I suspect Edgar would say I cannot talk about Piano Club. Well, the thing that worries me is what if Edgar and I might actually be the same person? I, but I, here's the problem. I have seen you two in the same space. Ah, okay. So it, it can't be. Which brings us to, you know, the Back to Fight Club, wonderful transition there, where, you know, obviously we are not necessarily seeing the narrator and Tyler in the same spot at the same time. Do, do, do. But the interesting thing is that the narrator picks up on this, but suspects it might actually be his therapeutic support group friend, Marla and Tyler, who are the same person, because he notices he never sees them together. What did you think about Marla as a character? She's a very uh, interesting creation on, on Chuck Palahniuk's part. I didn't understand Marla at all. Maybe this is just me and, and I have sometimes some difficulty understanding sexual relationships between men and women and I felt like Marla was there to kind of stir up some sort of emotion, some sexual energy between between the narrator, Tyler, and herself, but I just hadn't I honestly couldn't make heads or tails of it. In fact, there's even a quote in there, which I had noted, that it just made no sense to me at all. After Tyler and Marla had sex about ten times, Tyler says, Marla said she wanted to get pregnant. Marla said she wanted to have Tyler's abortion. Can you explain that to me? Literally, <laughs> I, to me, th 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 this is just, I don't know, it it's just... So it's an interesting anecdote, actually, when that line was going to be featured in the film Fight Club. The studio didn't want to have anything to do with it. They thought it was way too offensive for audiences. And Brad Pitt didn't even want to be in the same room where the line was said because he said, guys, my mom's going to have to see this. So what David Fincher did is he went to the production studio and he said, if I change the line, mm -hmm. 
which I'll, I will do willingly, can we agree that whatever line I choose has to stay in the film? And the execs were like, nothing can be worse than that abortion line. So yeah, whatever you want to put in there, David Fincher, we'll keep in the film. And that's when he wrote the now infamous line that's in the movie after Marla has sex with Tyler. I haven't been fucked that good since grade school. Ah, okay. Helena Bottom Carter, by the way, didn't realize that grade school meant sixth grade or younger when she delivered the line. Is now appalled that she had to say that. Oh, because she was... She's British, yeah. yeah. She just meant high school. So she thought the line was funny and not horrifying. Uh, apologies for the uh, swear there. I think that might be the first time we dropped a, an F-bomb. I, I, I dropped one earlier, but as you notice, every time I say fuck, that you're getting the beep sound. Fantastic. Um, yeah, you know, Marla's an interesting character, obviously. That first time Tyler's having sex with her ten times, it's just to keep her up all night because she's taken so many sleeping pills in a suicide attempt slash in her own admission, maybe just to cry for attention. I think Chuck Palahniuk, if I had to guess, is writing this character as the opposite of romance because the romance is really between the narrator and Tyler. Spoiler alert, the narrator and himself. And what? And so I think that she is, I think you're right, she's in there to kind of stir things up, but not in a traditional femme fatale kind of way. Um, He's playing off of that archetype. And I think if I had to explain uh, as an audacious a line as I want to have your abortion, it's what is a romantic thing a woman could say to a man? I want to have your baby. What's the opposite of that? I want to have your abortion. I think probably where that's coming from a literary device. I don't know as a straight man that this relationship with Marla rings true. We're reading a heterosexual romance written by a gay man. So I don't know that either one of us is going to relate fully to the realism of this. But I don't think any of the character interactions in this novel are actually real, so to speak, as much as they are means to an end, means to convey a type of philosophy that Chuck Palahniuk and men like him have been espousing for years. I think that sheds a little bit of light on this, that it sounds like, if I can summarize what you just said, that there isn't really a clear intent here to be realistic with the character. And no. And that she she's playing a part, but part of the role that she has is to create a little bit of confusion, is to create sort of a mix-up effect here amongst the characters. She is specifically a one-note character, intentionally so. I don't think, you know, if you're looking at this from a a Bechdel test standpoint, I don't think you should criticize Chuck Palahniuk for writing a one-dimensional female character. She's serving the exact role that Daisy Buchanan in F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, plays. Interesting where she is that wedge between two male characters and the otherwise stronger relationship between those male characters. And it is an exploration of masculinity, just like in The Great Gatsby, just as it is here, up to the point where, you know, we've got a basically personality-less narrator who, in the case of Fight Club, doesn't even realize he is the protagonist until the very end, much the same way as we have it with Nick Carraway and Jay Gatsby. We do have a better example, I think, of a female character at the beginning of the book with Chloe. Chloe's very interesting, right? Chloe's this woman who, I believe it's the brain parasite group? I think so, I'm not sure. Yeah, she's completely wasting away, uh, just skin and bones. He has some really gruesome details about what her body looks like now. All she wants to do is get laid one last time before she dies. And I feel like there is a lot to that character that sets up the future of this novel in that it is a character that our narrator is. Uh, by the way, if you're in a, in a book club having this discussion like we are, Chuck Palahniuk wrote Fight Club for book clubs for 
male book clubs in particular. He really wanted this to be a piece for discussion. People always have a hard time kind of identifying the narrator. The conventions, as I understand it, is if you were talking about the narrator as he exists in the novel, you say Joe. Because, of course, he has that Reader's Digest moment where he learns that the organs, Joe's, the organs in Joe's body in this Reader's Digest thing he wrote, uh, read, self-identify. And so he carries that on for the rest of the novel. Ed Norton is referred to as Jack in the movie, Jack's organs, Jack's sense of anguish. The character's actual name that we don't learn until the second graphic novel adaptation, also written by Chuck Palahniuk, is Sebastian. Interesting. So there you go. If you don't like saying the narrator, you got three options that you can choose from. But uh, for the sake of argument, we're just saying the narrator here. I think Chloe's opening something up in him in terms of, you know, Marla, who is also going to the support groups, romanticizes death a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that our narrator does. I don't know that he has a wish to die. I just think he doesn't have any will to live, and there's a difference. Ooh, that's a good discussion. Let's hold on to that here for a little bit, because okay. I think it ties in with the theme that I was hoping we could dig into. More. Yeah. And that theme is the role that Chuck Palahniuk has in this book with commercialism anti-commercialism and the the state of commercialism essentially being a stand-in for purpose for religion for so many things that is ultimately not satisfying to the male psyche Mm -hmm. i'm going to read a section this is actually near the end of the book but i think it sets up kind of the way that he structures this throughout the novel you have a class of young strong men and women and they want to give their lives to something. Advertising has these people chasing cars and clothes they don't need. Generations have been working in jobs they hate just so they can buy what they don't really need. Mm -hmm. And we have that quote, and then much earlier in the novel, in chapter five, we have another statement that the narrator makes. Oh, not my refrigerator. I collected shelves full of different mustards, some stone ground, some English pub style. There were 14 different flavors of fat-free salad dressing and seven kind of capers. That seems like your dream kitchen. Yeah, so here's the thing. I don't understand why this guy's angry. It looks like he's got his act together. We should all be so lucky. You've seen the size of my refrigerator. I couldn't get that many jars of fat-free salad dressing in there. No. The idea of consumerism is a very interesting one because I do think as humans as a whole, but particularly as men, we are taught to cleave out these material objects almost as reward for our work, as reward for our duties in life. And that there is this tie between masculinity and wealth and masculinity and the fancy toys that we have and clearly what Chuck Palahniuk finds and I think you and I would probably both agree with it that's not what brings you happiness I I have been to your house you are a man who likes fine art you like fine drinks um, you like fine audio equipment you have the things that you like but I don't think that your happiness is tied to any individual one of those so while we're on this topic I think this is great because I think for a significant part of my life that that was something where it was a motivating factor like I think we all at some point have an idea of the person who we would like to be who we would like to become and yes some of that involves having nice things and building a home nesting if you want to call it that and building a world around yourself that you want but at some point If you're fortunate enough, and and I have to say right now that I do count myself very fortunate, and I think the narrator of this book would also, at the beginning of it, 
call himself fortunate. Mm-hmm. That you get to a point where you've worked hard and you realize that you have those things. And that's great. It actually, it, it checks a box. I'm not going to say that it d- doesn't have value. In fact, it brings a great deal of contentment. Contentment. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That is the word that I was, I was going for because it doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. And I think a lot of what I've spent the last five, six, seven years really coming to understand is, okay, I got that thing that I thought I wanted, and I did. I'm not saying it was some sort of, like, you know, double-edged sword that when I got it, I'd be, you know, terribly unhappy. But the reality is that it doesn't actually fulfill that happiness or satisfaction, which is a word I actually think is more appropriate here Mm -hmm. that do you feel satisfied after a hard day's work and i do want to call back here to to hemingway the first book that we read where i believe i called out in that episode that one of the things that really struck me about santiago at the end of the book was how exhausted he was but that that seemed to bring him joy yeah yeah no, I think, you know, I, uh, in my leap to becoming a writer, I gave up a lot of the material comforts that a steady nine to five type of career afforded me. I am the happiest that I have ever been, not quite as content as I could be. And so I do think that it's really interesting that you make that distinction because I do think we oftentimes conflate the two and we should not, especially in this day and age where finding true happiness seems to be harder to find and further and further out of reach for a lot of people. Well, I'm going to use this as a moment to rail a little bit against social media culture, which I think has very much indoctrinated us to not actually understand what satisfaction looks like. We see curated views of other people's lives that are not necessarily happy, but they may look wonderful. They may be very attractive people doing things that seem wonderful and picturesque. It's not happiness. It really isn't. And in fact, I even caught myself doing this more than once to say, oh, I'm going to post a whole bunch of photos from a vacation. Well, the trip, I actually didn't enjoy all that much. Hmm. But I was able to put together a damn good set of photos. Right. You know, obviously, Fight Club written before social media, but I think that is the that is the natural course that consumerism has taken us on. You know, it is not buy this stick of butter and you'll enjoy this stick of butter. It's look how happy your family's going to be all together around the dining room table enjoying the fact that you purchased this stick of butter. Look how amazed your kids are going to be when you surprise them with this trip to Dutch Pennsylvania. And, you know, what a bucolic and idealistic view of the world that you're going to have just because of this material or artificial thing. I think we've just taken that a step further with social media in 2021. Speaking of consumerism culture, I think it's time for a sponsor. That is a painful segue, Zach. (laughs) I'm just, I'm going for my uh, worst transition award at the uh, potties, annual potties. Oh, this one's an interactive one. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question. Hit me as hard as you can. (laughs) So, yeah, you know, uh, like podcasts are supposed to, I guess we're supposed to be like, this is organic to our conversation. Okay. So, Gordon, do you ever have that not so fresh feeling? Why is that? Soap! That's right. $20 a bar made from genuine rendered human fat guaranteed to get out bloodstains. Paper Street Soap Company. Available in high-end department stores nationwide. Paper Street Soap Company denies all ties to Project Mayhem, its affiliates, and any underground fight clubs. It seems like most soap brands don't need to have that many disclaimers. You know what? Outside of Irish Springs, I can't think of a single one. I never like Dial. Just don't trust it. Understandable. Yeah, what did you make of the whole soap 
plot line that is becomes increasingly more a driver for this industry of Fight Club slash Project Mayhem. I don't know. It, it, it felt like Polinek had gone around and looked for some sort of mechanism that would be able to tie together something that seemed, on one hand, purifying, and on the other hand, destructive. Ooh, interesting. And it totally fits the bill. I, I would be curious to ask him if this was something that he knew about like nitroglycerin and that before he started writing this book. This seems like it's something where you're, you're kind of working and you're looking for an example that meets this criteria and, oh, this is this, this thing that it seems so innocuous and yet it has this byproduct, which is awful. It's not the only thing in the world that I think would meet that criteria, but it, it, it does do a good job. The, the fact that he works in the liposuction does add an interesting angle to it because that, to me, is a metaphor for excess. Right. It's a little bit of that consumerism culture again, you know, as anti-consumer culture as Fight Club Sus Project Mayhem is on the surface. They are still monetizing a brand and playing by the rules of society to fund their operation, which I think is just an interesting irony. I wonder if the anecdote that he shares, which I don't actually know if it's true, but Tyler Durden at some point shares an anecdote that this funeral pyre where they would burn the heretics in you know, medieval times would, would render the human fat and the lie from the fire into essentially soap that would slosh down off of this pyre where they had burned thousands of people over the years, create soap in the water that then made the clothes cleaner, which then turned to help purify things, which then saved lives and gets us to that whole connection of we as a society, we as men tend to burn our heroes. And so I'm wondering if that was just his roundabout way to get to that analogy, if it all sprang from there. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves because that's going to be one of our upcoming topics here about heroes and about the lack thereof that I think... We, we have set topics. Well, it's mostly just scratched on the bottom of this napkin. The problem is that Crystal's doing such a good job of keeping order on this table that I've lost a couple of these napkins that have my <laughs> notes. So if there's ever like a weird gap, it's probably because of the missing napkin. So, And if I ever just randomly am talking about a topic and I insert the word stardust, it's because it's monogrammed on top of all of the napkins here. Dr. McCallum, to his credit, does a lot of prep work for this. My prep work is just pre-drinking before we get to the stardust. You know, we're dealing with a lot of men who have lost their way in this novel. Uh, But there is one character who I don't feel like fits in with the typical mold of the guys who would eventually join Fight Club. And that's one of the first people our narrator is introduced to, Bob from the the testicular uh, cancer support group. Bob uh, is, a, I believe, a former bodybuilder who, uh, through injection of steroids and testosterone, actually had his body overcorrect with estrogen and now is growing very noticeable breasts. I believe he's played by Meatloaf in the movie, if I'm remembering that right. Bob, for all the challenges that he's got going on in his life, seems like a pretty open guy with his emotions. He seems to really have a good grasp on things. You know, we're reintroduced to him when he's just going to the meeting that no longer exists to tell people about Fight Club. You know, he seems to be a person who wants the best for other people and wants the best for himself. And I don't know that that fits the Fight Club model that we've seen so far. Well, definitely the emotional openness that, that's there is, is notable. Like, he is called out quite specifically in the early chapters of the book. But by the same token, I don't want to necessarily assume that everyone is at Fight Club for the same reason. Sure. He is someone who actually legitimately 
has a challenge, a problem in his life. He isn't one of these people who is just going there to cry. Like, he, he very much had a reason to be there. So, just as much as the narrator slash Tyler, or Sebastian as we now can call him, is there due to this ennui, this emptiness that he has in his mm-hmm. life, that Bob is there because it sounds like he needs an escape. He needs a reason to live and to keep going despite all of these awful things that have happened to him physically. So maybe this is a way of Chuck Palahniuk saying that, hey, you know what? For folks who are quote-unquote doing well, there's this challenge or this emptiness that happens in real life, and you go to Fight Club in order to deal with that. But there are people who who aren't necessarily feeling that emptiness, but they're feeling something else. Mm -hmm. And that, guess what, in the Chuck Palahniuk world, beating up other guys and getting beat up yourself is a good way to deal with that, too. Maybe. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. Not everybody is maybe going to Fight Club. We only know a few characters' reasons for being in Fight Club. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of men who eventually go through the Fight Club ring, and so they're probably bringing their own stuff to it. Uh, I know you recently took up flag football. This is true. Uh, awesome. From what you've told me, it's actually a little bit more than flag football. There's some full contact happening. I don't. I wouldn't say full contact, but there is contact. We, it, we, it, but, but but it's very it's very structured in what's allowed, and it's in a way that is designed not to have injury. Okay. Do you wish that it was a little more hard hitting? No, because I've seen a number of times where people have really gotten shaken up, even with that. And this isn't me at all saying anything bad about flag football. I think it's fantastic. And no, I, it's been I, great I, for you. I, I think... I think you're in the best shape of your life. Well, thank you. But I, I think that when I compare it with American football, yeah, I honestly... And now you're getting, getting unchecked Gordon McCallan opinions here that I honestly don't know why we're encouraging so many people in this world to play full contact football. Flag football is a excellent sport, and I see a tremendous amount of athleticism in it. And people who are really good at it, it is amazing how they how they excel on the field. And I, I, I just don't understand why we're putting people at risk. I would have told you to just stop talking, least we lose some male listeners, but you already lost everybody when you identified as American football. Well said. That is the most snobbish European thing I've ever heard you say, which is saying a lot. Did I say it in a derogatory way? (laughs) Just by saying American football, we all know what you meant. We all know what you meant. You mean bowling? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I guess it's just interesting to me. You you weren't someone who sought out physical activity earlier in life, but you are now. And is there a sense of self-worth beyond just the camaraderie and the sport that it brings to you. I think that is an interesting observation. I'm going to say yes. I think that it has given me an outlet for athleticism that also has a competitive nature to it, and that combination of things is really important. Just going to the gym, you know, it can be great, but I really do like being in a competitive environment. And, And again, getting back to what we were talking about in last week's episode about is the point of Fight Club to actually win fights? Doesn't seem like it, but there definitely is moments of aggression. Me versus the other. Yeah, and I think that I think it's that sense of competition, both inwardly and outwardly. You know, I, uh, I I've wrestled for, through most of my school career, both metaphorically and physically. Mostly wrestling with myself uh, okay. and my own inner demons. 
but then occasionally I would put on a singlet and wrestle other guys, yeah. Uh, and then I've done some mixed martial arts as well, and I think I've learned, looking back on it, some of the biggest lessons I've learned, the experiences that I'm most grateful for actually come from the losses. You know, I think you learn a lot about yourself in terms of what you're willing to concede, what you're willing to give up, what you're willing to still fight for when you are grievously hurt, when you're really struggling against that. And so I, I, I just that's that's my big takeaway from Fight Club as a whole is that it doesn't matter if you win or lose. It's just it's the fight that that identifies you as as someone and not sure that I even agree with that mentality. But I think that's what Chuck Palahniuk's kind of trying to say. And I can relate to it at least. Is that why you think he has the narrator so happy that I think he says that half of his teeth are loose? Yeah. Yeah, he's got that hole in his cheek that's not that's not healing right. His whole face is black and green and shades of yellow. Um, and I, I like that there's that camaraderie, too, because you don't talk about Fight Club, but you'll see that guy across the boardroom, or you'll see that guy in some negotiations with another company who's got a black eye, and you kind of give each other a slight nod of acknowledgement, and you both know. You both know. And I, I think that, you know, while Fight Club and certainly Project Mayhem are absolutely ridiculous, I think there is something to be said for that. That need that men have for a boys club that doesn't have to be toxic, by the way. It doesn't have to be, I, I'm asserting my dominance over you or we're doing locker room talk about, you know, previous sexual conquests. I think it could be something as simple as, you know, maybe you don't, you're not friends with somebody outside of your flag football league beyond the time on the field. But it's, I'm sure if you saw them out about town, you'd have a friendly thing to say from them and a kind of a mutual shared respect that you would both have for one another because of that experience. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today's episode. I want to thank the Stardust Lounge for again having this brunch. And actually, I see them putting out placards. I think there's now a brunch special. What is the special, does it say? It's basically just the dinner menu with a few red lines through the prices and somehow it's more expensive to have a steak here at brunch than it is at, at dinner today. that does not surprise me at all you know stardust lounge has to fund its own fight club somehow wait 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 we're not wait. talking about that sorry we can we'll just edit that out. We're, we'll we're, we're just gonna leave a whole bunch of copies we made in the <laughs> stardust copy machine with the rule list right okay any good terrorist cell leader that's what they do that's how you get the word out truly Anyhow, this has been a really interesting discussion. Thanks to Crystal. Thanks to Edgar. Uh, you know, thanks to um, Eric Bennett, our mutual friend who does a lot of the sound engineering and um, social media design for us. I really appreciate that guy. Eric, do, do you want to do you want to say something here? No. Okay. He's he's a man of few words. That's why we love him. Okay. Literaryguys.com at literaryguys on social media at Gordon McCallan at Zach Kellyan. We'll see you online. This has been Literary Guys. Signing off.